please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 12. At the beginning of last week's message, I spoke to you at length about metanoia. Metanoia, of course, is the Greek word that's translated as repentance in our English Bible. And it means literally a change of mind. This is what God ultimately desires from his people, not just simply a change in action, but a change in mind. To change one's actions without changing the thoughts and the desires that produce those actions is to practice nothing more than rank hypocrisy. It's the equivalent of whitewashing a tomb, Jesus says. It's like cleaning the outside of the cup while leaving the inside, you know, the part that you actually drink from, full of greed and wickedness. God loathes that kind of worship. He regularly condemns Israel for such attempts at obedience in the Old Testament, and it forms the basis of, Le of Jesus' contention with the scribes and the Pharisees in the New. What God desires is sincere worship, authentic obedience. And what this requires is a change in one's thoughts, a change in one's desires. It requires metanoia. Achieving metanoia is a rather tricky business. On the one hand, one could say it's without explanation. There's nothing a person can do to produce it. It must simply be given to them by God through the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the other hand, one can say that there is an explanation for it. That is, it comes as a person encounters some new bit of information that changes the way they think about themselves, about God, about the world around them. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says in Romans 12, 2, but be transformed. That's the passive part. That's the part that God does. Be transformed, he says, through the renewal of your mind. That's the active part. That's the part we do. We renew our mind, and as our mind is renewed, God transforms us. I told you that as your pastor, I try to make it my aim, not just to give you law, not just to tell you what to do, but to help you find metanoia. Repentance, yes, but a change of mind specifically. And ultimately, the way I try to do this quite often is by getting back to your starting points. I said that if you want to understand why a person does the things they do, it always comes back to their starting points. You discover, you discover either the thing they love most, the one thing they want more than anything else, or you discover what they believe about fundamental reality, and you can more or less determine all of the rest of their decisions. And these two things are related, by the way. Again, I said last week, but what a person wants more than anything else, quite often it will be shaped or determined by what they think is fundamental reality. The one who thinks that this life is all there is, for instance, the one who thinks that there is no immaterial realm or life after death, they'll generally make decisions according to what they think will make them most happy in this life. The one who thinks that there is such a thing as a soul, on the other hand, and life after death. They'll tend to make decisions based on what will make them happy, happy over eternity. 
Depending on what two different people's starting points are, they can end up at two radically different conclusions. I think about this whenever I stumble upon the concept of AI. AI, of course, stands for artificial intelligence. And if you're at all familiar with the dialogue that's taking place amongst technological ethicists regarding the development of AI, then you'll know that one of the dangers that they foresee with this technology is what could happen if AI were to run amok. For instance, they say if you develop an AI and tell it to develop paper clips in the most efficient way possible, then it may be that eventually it determines that the human race and all that is an obstacle in the path of making paper clips. And so what you might end up with is a very dystopian sort of future wherein an AI wipes out the human race before proceeding to turn the entire universe into a giant paperclip making factory. That's probably a very different end than what you and I would have in mind for the universe, right? Because when we look out into the world and wonder what's this all about, what's this all for, we don't think paperclips. There's some other purpose that we have in mind. For the Christian, the starting point is the gospel. This is foundational reality for us. This message that although God created man in his own image to serve and glorify him, that man chose to reject that role, electing instead to seek his own purposes and glory. And that now, on account of this rebellion, man deserves to suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell, and such a fate he would be condemned to suffer, except that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, chose instead to send his son into the world so that he might suffer the wrath of God for us in our place so that whosoever believes in him might be saved. And that he did this not only so that we might not suffer the wrath of God, but that being redeemed from his wrath, we might receive his blessing and see his glory and serve and glorify him. That's the foundational story that shapes our understanding of the world and how we think we're supposed to interact with it. What are we here for? What is our purpose? To glorify God. What's the problem with this world? It's sin. Sin both with respect to the power of sin, which pushes our hearts away from God and makes us unwilling to see his glory, and sin with respect to the penalty of sin which condemns us before God and makes us unable both to receive the blessing that would make us want to see the glory of God and to enter into the presence of God where we can behold his glory. What's the solution? How do we solve this sin problem so that we can live up to this purpose? The answer is Jesus Christ. Christ died to remove us from both the penalty and power of sin. That's the story that we would say explains everything that's going on around us. Why is the world way, the way it is and what should we do about it? It's all there in this story of redemption. Of God redeeming mankind from the penalty and power of sin. That's not a foundation that the rest of the world necessarily shares. And what this means is that we can end up coming to some, some conclusions that seem pretty peculiar in the world's eyes. There are some behaviors that we'll perform based on this starting point 
that can leave unbelievers scratching their heads, wondering what's gotten into us. And in the passage that we're going to be looking at here this morning, we're going to encounter one of those behaviors, one of those conclusions. The subject of today's message for the second week in a row is liberty. And if you recall, I said last week that the Corinthians are writing to Paul, and one of the questions on their mind is, are we as Christians free to visit pagan temples and participate in the sacrificial meals that occur there before these idols? Only if you remember, it's not so much of a question that they're asking. Instead, it's more of an assertion. They're telling Paul, Listen, we know these idols aren't real. We know that they don't exist. And so we don't see what the problem is. We know that in our heart we're not worshiping. In fact, it's really impossible for us to worship since you can't really worship a God that doesn't exist. And so we should be able to do this. There's nothing wrong with this. Paul answers this assertion by saying, that's true. You are right. And that there is nothing technically wrong with simply attending a pagan worship service. Simply being around idolatry doesn't necessarily make you an idolater. But he says you're forgetting one thing. Not all possess this knowledge. Meaning, chapter 8, verse 4, not everyone knows that an idol has no real existence or that there is no God but one. There are some Christians among you, he explains, whose consciousness of this fact is weak. Yes, they've repented of their idolatry. The problem is that polytheism has such a grip on their way of thinking that they're having trouble disassociating that theological system from these idolatrous practices. And so when they see you go and participate in one of these sacrifices, they're going to be encouraged to participate as well. Only they'll participate as if the food really is offered to an idol. They'll interpret your actions not in the way that you mean it, as an expression of your freedom, but rather as an endorsement of idolatry. And they'll participate in this meal with that kind of a mindset. And the result is that they'll be destroyed. You'll ruin your brother. And that's why this is a sin, Paul says. It's not because the mere participation in one of these meals is intrinsically sinful. Rather, it's because of its effect, its consequences. Attendance at one of these meals will encourage the brother with the already weakened conscience to participate in an activity that will damage his spiritual health, perhaps even destroying that brother's faith entirely. And that's not only a sin against that brother to hurt him in such a way spiritually, but it's a sin against Christ. Because Christ died for that brother's sanctification. He died for that brother's worship. Towards the end of that message, I noted that these two different takes on the practice of liberty in this passage ultimately stem from two fundamentally different understandings of the gospel. Only it's not the content of the gospel that the Corinthians and Paul don't seem to see eye to eye on. They both seem to understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by the works of the law. And in this sense, they both agree that there is freedom in the gospel. What they don't seem to agree on, though, is what this freedom is for. 
The Corinthians seem to think that this freedom is there for their own benefit. They're wanting to advance socially, and they see this freedom as a means of achieving that. There's this word for right in verse 9, exousia, which I told you means something like authority. That seems to be what they think this knowledge is all about. It's about giving someone the authority, the authorization to do what they wish. You know, as they say, uh, knowledge is power, right? You guys have heard that before. That's sort of how the Corinthians are interpreting their theological knowledge. It's the means to greater power, greater authority. And of course, what they're trying to do with this knowledge is show off who has the most power. Trying to show off, in a sense, who is the most free. It's like I said, this is true even of the ascetics in chapter 7. You have this one group in chapter 6, and they're saying, I'm the most advanced, I'm the most free, because I know it doesn't matter who you have sex with. And the ascetics are responding by saying, no, I'm the most free, because I don't have sex at all. I'm free of all earthly concerns. I've completely transcended above the cravings of the body. That's not what Paul thinks this freedom is for, though. For him, this freedom isn't there for boasting. It's there, rather, for the building up of others. Verse 1, again, he observes, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love builds up. This is why he and the Corinthians have such radically different takes on their understanding of Christian freedom. They're both working with the same theology, the same doctrine, but they're working with it from two different purposes for this doctrine. The one thinks it's there to serve themselves, and so they use it in a way that is essentially selfish. And the other thinks it's there to serve others. And so they use it in a way that's selfless. Well, part of the problem with these two fundamentally different perspectives on freedom is that it's causing the Corinthians to misinterpret some of Paul's actions. Again, this was part of the point I was trying to make last week. If you remember, I said that if you don't understand Paul's starting point here, if you don't understand how he's thinking about this concept and his relationship with the gospel, then you're going to have a hard time either understanding or at the very least assimilating the principles and applications that we're going to be uncovering over the next couple of chapters. I even said that it would be like trying to see with someone else's prescription glasses. What Paul says might be, a little helpful, but things are still going to come out sort of fuzzy. Well, that's what's happening here with the Corinthians and their understanding of Paul. Their understanding of the gospel is so skewing their understanding of freedom that as they observe Paul in his freedom, something about it seems off. What is that? What seems off about Paul? Well, if I could put it like this, because they think freedom exists for one's own personal advancement, and that the way a person does this is by showing off their freedom, then if a person has freedom, rights, authority, then they're obviously going to use them, right? I mean, if you've got it, flaunt it. That's the Corinthian way of thinking about freedom. Well, Paul is working from a completely different paradigm. And for him, freedom is about serving other people. And what this means is that just because he can do something doesn't necessarily mean that he should. He thinks you first have to ask yourself, does my 
exercise of this freedom build up other people? Does it edify? And if the answer to this question is yes, then use it. Exercise that right. But if the answer is no, then don't. Refrain from using that authority. And this is what Paul has been doing. He's been operating under this principle that I called the edification principle last week. And this means that there are some rights that Paul is not making use of. And do you know how the Corinthians are interpreting all this? They think it's a sign of weakness. They think it's a sign of immaturity. The thinking goes, if Paul is not using this right, then it must be because he doesn't realize that he has it. It must mean that he doesn't know. Or, even worse, it means that he does know and doesn't use it. It means uh, then perhaps that that right doesn't exist. It must mean that he doesn't possess that authority, that right. And that's obviously not how this works for Paul. Just because he doesn't use one of his rights doesn't mean that he doesn't possess it. It just means he doesn't consider it to be edifying. And so now what Paul has to do is not just explain to the Corinthians how to use their rights, but he has to do so while defending his own authority, which has been compromised in their eyes because of the way that they're approaching this topic. And that's what Paul is going to do here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. One of the key words in this chapter is this word defense, apologia, in verse 3, where Paul says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. That really sets the tone for this entire chapter. Paul has practiced his liberty in such a way that the Corinthians are beginning to question his authority. And what we have here is Paul's defense of his actions. He's going to explain why he used his liberty in this way. And in the process, he's going to give us further insight into this edification principle that we began to explore last week. So let's go ahead and see what Paul did that was so offensive and what his defense is for his actions. Once again, the defense occurs over the whole course of chapter 9, but this week we're going to examine just the first part of that defense which occurs in verses 1 through 12. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. In this passage, the Apostle Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak ent entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's unfortunate, but occasionally a Christian leader will do or say something that will call their character into question. That might be a clear and obvious sin, like an outburst of anger or something like that. Maybe it's a simple lack of judgment. Meaning maybe they didn't do anything sinful per se, but they did or said something that demonstrates a lack of maturity or discernment. Maybe they were asked a relatively simple doctrinal question, for instance, and not only did they fumble over the answer, but they actually got the answer wrong. Whenever this sort of, things happen, this sort of thing happens, it can create a kind of leadership crisis. The people can begin to wonder, is this man qualified to lead us? Does he really know what he's talking about? For example, I can still remember the first time I started to question my pastor's authority. It came from something as simple as a sermon illustration. He presented something as factual, which clearly had the ring of an urban legend to it. I went home, and after... Five minutes of internet sleuthing, I discovered that, lo and behold, it was an urban legend. It didn't really happen the way he said it happened, and just like that, I started to wonder, how credible is my pastor? If I can't trust him to discern the difference between an obvious urban myth and fact, then just how far should I trust him? What else might he be wrong on that I don't know about? The leader faces two options in these kinds of situations. Either they can own the error and seek forgiveness. You know, they can promise to do better and hope that over time they can repair the damage done to their credibility. Or they can dig in and defend their behavior. They can try to justify their outburst, explain why it was warranted, or how it wasn't really as bad as what everyone thought it was. They can defend their teaching or explain the context of their words, why the sermon illustration that they did, why they used it, and why they didn't explain that it was an urban legend, even though they knew it was. They can try to do that. Now, which of these two options they can do sort of depends on what the accusation is, right? If they're guilty of an error of some part, then they should probably seek forgiveness. But if they're not, Suppose the accusation is false. Well, then regardless of what their people think, they need to dig in and defend their behavior. That's how they're going to restore their reputation. It isn't by admitting fault where there is no fault. It's by showing their congregation their fault, their congregation's error. In the passage we just read, we discover that Paul has done something that has caused the Corinthians to question his character, his qualifications to lead. And do you know what it is? What's Paul's great crime, his sin, his error in judgment? It's that he refused to receive financial support from the Corinthians. That's sort of wild, I think. I mean, uh, sadly, it's not uncommon today to hear that a pastor is in hot water because he's been embezzling from the church. 
or because he's been too liberal with his, his uh, expense account. You'll maybe even hear people gripe and complain because they think the pastor earns too much money. Paul's in trouble for the exact opposite of that. The Corinthians' problem with Paul is that he's not taken any of their money. He's chosen to minister to them for free. Now, most churches would probably love a pastor who would come in and work for them for free. So why are the Corinthians so miffed over this? You might think that it's because they want Paul to dedicate himself to the ministry full time. That's the reasoning that most churches would provide. They don't want their pastor distracted from the ministry by working a nine-to-five day job. They want him fully invested in the church. But there's nothing in the context here to indicate that that's what's going on in this passage. So what's this about? There are probably two different answers to this question. The first relates to the Corinthians' pride. It's obvious from the context that the Corinthians struggled with pride, that they saw the gospel as a means for social advancement. Well, in this society, rich people would often support well-known and popular philosophers or artists as a means of flaunting their own status. Kind of a, you know, you think Plato is special, well, guess who supports him kind of a thing. It was one of their ways of schmoozing and making powerful connections. Almost similar to a modern-day political donor and how they use their money to get themselves close to powerful people. Well, if you've ever turned someone like this down, then you can probably anticipate how they tend to react. When you reject their gift, their patronage, their support, they interpret that as a rejection of them. And that wounds their pride. Instead of coming off as important, they're being told that they're not even worthy to support you. And that can make them a bit cross. That's probably part of what's going on here. In fact, Paul talks about refusing this sort of support so as not to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel in verse 12. And in context, this is probably what he's referring to. We know that in other contexts, Paul had no problem receiving support from those he ministered to, but he does here with the Corinthians, and it's clearly not because he was afraid that they'd be turned off by the perception that he was selling the gospel, because they're more offended by the fact that he won't take their money. And so what's probably going on here is that Paul is seeing the Corinthians' pride. He's seeing that they're going to see the support as a means of spiritual or social advancement, and he's refusing their money in order to push back on that concept. In other words, if they were giving with right motives, then Paul probably would be fine with taking their money. But they're not. They're giving with a corrupt motive, which, if fed, will confuse the gospel and damage their spiritual health. And so Paul is refusing payment in order to prevent the sort of spiritual damage to the weaker brother that he just described up in chapter 8. Do you guys see where that's going? We're going to talk about this more in just a bit, but the idea here is that just like the visit to the temple, there's not necessarily anything wrong with Paul taking money from the Corinthians. The problem is that while he knows it's okay, quote, not all possess this knowledge. Meaning the Corinthians don't understand this issue in the way that Paul does. And so Paul is refusing payment to prevent damage or even destroying the brother whose consciousness of these things is weak. So that's one reason why Paul's refusal to receive payment is so offensive 
The other reason begins to emerge in verses 1 and 2. There Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. If you're catching what's going on there, it would appear that the Corinthians aren't just offended by Paul's refusal of support, but some are probably even beginning to question Paul's authority as an apostle because of it. You see this most especially in verse 2, where Paul says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. The implication is that someone is apparently going around and saying, you know, Paul's not really an apostle anyways. And that may be because by refusing payment, it might seem like Paul doesn't know how to take full advantage of his gifts. Again, they're thinking that liberty is there to show off. And so for Paul to not do likewise reveals some serious error in judgment, some deficiency in his understanding. More than likely, though, this accusation could be summarized with the phrase, I think, you get what you pay for. It'd be like if I went and bought a brand new uh, big screen television at Walmart and then came home and right away set it out on the curb with a free sign. How many people do you think would drive by that television just assuming that because it's free, there must be something wrong with it? I mean, I know I would, right? I'm not going to haul off someone else's junk, you know? That's probably the line of thinking that the Corinthians are falling into. Paul must not receive payment because he doesn't think himself worthy of it. This must be indicative of some serious doubt in Paul with respect to his own abilities. And if Paul doubts himself that much, then why should we have any confidence in him? After all, who's going to know Paul better than Paul, right? So that's probably what's going on here. There's some combination of wounded pride and lack of confidence in Paul taking place because of this refusal to receive payment. And honestly, it may very well be that one of these is feeding into the other, um, you know how a guy will convince himself that his crush really wasn't all that great to begin with? Only after she rejects him? It's probably something like that. The Corinthians are asking Paul to go steady. And Paul is saying, no, thank you. And at least some of the Corinthians are saying, yeah, well, you're not worth it anyways. Right? Why would a stud like me want to go out with a dog like you? You know, I was just trying to do you a favor. None of that's true. The problem's not with Paul. He's not ugly, right? No, the problem is with the Corinthians. Their conceit is getting into the way of their thinking and is causing them to misunderstand Paul. And so Paul doesn't back down. Instead, he digs in here and he uses this question about the pagan temples to explain his conduct. And his explanation in turn serves to illustrate his point in chapter 8. I think it's really quite brilliant. Paul is killing two birds with one stone here. He's not only defending his ministry, but he's explaining what he means in chapter 8. And the result is that as Paul defends this use of his liberty, he gives us some additional insight into this edification principle that we discovered last week. So what can we learn about the proper use of our liberties from this passage? I think it can be summarized in three points, three principles to practice with respect to the exercise of Christian liberty. And just so you know, I even worked hard to alliterate these three principles. They all begin with the letter E, right? So once again, we, they, there's uh, this uh, expansion of the, the edification principle that we discovered last week. And uh, the first principle is this. 
And that's the evangelism principle. Once again, that's the evangelism principle. This actually occurs at the end of the passage in verse 12, but I want to begin here because this is an explanation for everything that goes before. And in this sense, I think it's going to give us some additional insight into these other principles that we're going to see here in this passage. So once again, just because Paul can do something doesn't mean he does. And in this case, he's explaining why he didn't use this right to receive payment for his work for the gospel in verses 1 through 11. And what's his answer? Verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I've already explained to you what Paul probably means by this in context. What we're seeing here is not only serving as a defense, but it's also serving as an illustration of Paul's point up in chapter 8. The Corinthians in this case are the brother with the weaker conscience. Or again, I explained this last week, I think it might be better to understand this as consciousness, moral consciousness. Just as the brother up in chapter 8 denies polytheism, but still struggles to get his head wrapped around that fact, so also do the Corinthians probably realize that the gospel is not there for mere personal advancement intellectually. They probably understand in theory that they've been redeemed to serve Christ first and to serve others as an extension of their love for Christ. I mean, that's probably why Paul doesn't have to really explain any of his statements up in chapter 8 about love. It's because he's already uh, explained these things and he's simply repeating something that they already know. But, as you probably know, just because a Christian understands something in theory doesn't necessarily mean that they always own it in their heart. There can often be this disconnect where they know one thing and they want to do it while still finding themselves pulled back into their former loves. That's what Paul understands about the Corinthians. They understand in theory that the gospel is for others, but they're struggling to put that together practically. They still find themselves getting pulled into this desire for personal advancement and praise. And so rather than receive payment for his services, which we'll see Paul could do rightfully. He's instead elected to forgo that right so as not to destroy the brother whose consciousness of this particular aspect of the gospel is weak. Essentially, he doesn't want the perception that they're giving some sort of patronage to him to intoxicate them with the promise of prestige and make them fall back into this former way of thought. And in this sense, what we're seeing here is just an extension of this edification principle, but with some added clarity. Again, the gospel is foundational reality for Paul. The story that I described to you here earlier this morning, which I said is the starting point for the Christian and which shapes their way of looking at the world and the kinds of decisions they make, that's Paul's starting point. And so when he's thinking about whether or not to use a liberty, what he wants to know is not just simply what builds others up, but what builds them up in Christ specifically. I tell you, I think this is an important distinction to make in our day and age. Paul wanted to do what was edifying, but that's not the same thing as saying he was just wanting to boost other people's self-esteem or something like that. 
Unfortunately, that's how some people think of edification today. They think that the goal or purpose of life is to be happy. And so they think that the best way that they can love someone else is to simply encourage them to do whatever makes them happy. And that they can, if they can do that, then they've edified them. They've built them up. Paul's not working within that sort of framework. He doesn't think that the purpose of this life is simply to be happy. Instead, what the gospel tells him is that the problem with this world is sin. It's man's rebellion against God. God is not glorified as God. That's the problem with this world. That's what needs to be fixed. And so the way you build people up is by trying to address that. You call them to repentance. You seek metanoia. Admonishment, for instance, can be edifying in this sense because when administered in the right context, it calls a person back to a right relationship with God. That's how Paul is thinking about his liberty. He's seeking what is edifying to others. But what we discover here is that according to Paul, edification means calling people back into a right relationship with Christ specifically. And so what he wants to know is not just simply, does this liberty build other people up generally, but does it build them up in Christ specifically? Does it draw them closer to Christ? Does it increase their worship of God? Or does it push them in the opposite direction? The answer to that question will determine whether or not Paul takes advantage of the rights that he has in Christ. In this instance, for example, he determined that a salary would not build the Corinthians up in their faith. It would likely only tear them down. And so even though Paul can receive payment from them, he doesn't do it. It wouldn't edify. It wouldn't build up. Now, starting in the next section of this chapter, we're going to see Paul continue to develop and apply this principle, what I'm calling the evangelism principle, in some really interesting ways. But before we get into all of that, I want us to first look at two other principles that emerge in Paul's build-up to that point. The first of which is this, principle number two, what I like to call the expanded principle. Once again, that's the expanded principle. Now, I'm going to admit, that's a pretty awful name for what I'm going to try to describe here. Um, Truth be told, I've had a lot of problems with this passage this week, because the fact is, a lot of what Paul is talking about here seems a little off subject. Chapter 8, he's giving counsel about how to practice liberty. He's dealing with this question of participation in idol sacrifices. Chapter 10, he's going to return back to that same subject. And then sandwiched in between, he's defending his use of his liberty, and he's talking about the right to get paid. That seems like it's off subject. But really, that's almost my point with this principle, this expanded principle. When we think about the practice of liberty, we tend to think about it in light of our right to participate in morally gray areas. Should I drink alcohol? Should I go to a secular movie? Stuff like that. And that's because we're thinking about liberty like a bunch of Corinthians. We want to know, what am I free to do? When am I okay? And when am I in sin? And Paul's not thinking that way. Again, he's not only asking, how can I use my rights to serve others? But he's wanting to know, how can I build them up in Christ specifically? And listen, that question expands this subject beyond just simply what a person can and can't do, what is permissible to do, and gets us thinking in the area of what is profitable to do. 
Again, that's why I keep using this phrase edification principle instead of stumbling block principle. Paul isn't interested in just not hurting others. He's wanting to build them up. And so he's not really thinking about this simply in terms of what is right and wrong, good and evil, all of that. Again, you go back to chapter 8, and he acknowledges that there's nothing inherently sinful about simply attending a pagan worship festival. The problem, though, is that it's going to have a negative effect on others. It's morally permissible, but it isn't loving. It doesn't edify. It doesn't build up. And this means that when Paul is thinking about liberty, he's thinking about it beyond the gray areas. Let me say that again. He's thinking about this issue beyond the moral gray areas. He's thinking about it in relation to subjects that are probably not recognizable as having any kind of moral bearing whatsoever. You know, things like, should I get a paycheck? You see what I mean? I don't think anyone would identify that as a morally gray area. No one is wondering to themselves, is it sin to get paid for my work? And you know what? Neither would Paul. Paul isn't wondering, is it a sin to get paid for my work? We'll see in a moment. He knows it isn't. Not even close. And the Corinthians aren't even presenting it in that way. Everyone has actually agreed that this isn't sin for Paul to get paid. But what Paul is still wondering is, is it profitable? Right or not, does my receiving a paycheck build others up? Or does it place a stumbling block in their sanctification? Isn't that crazy? I mean, I'll tell you, when I, I think when you grasp what's going on here, that's when I think you're really going to understand Paul's perspective on liberty. Again, he's not approaching this simply from the perspective of what a person is morally free to do and what they are morally obligated not to do. That's still looking at this whole issue according to what benefits Paul. What rights can he exercise? He doesn't want to know so much what he can do. He wants to know what he should do. And that's an entirely different kind of question. It's the kind of question that gets you looking at all the things that you know you can do, that you're absolutely free to do, no question about it, no morally gray area, and then wonder to yourself, am I doing that the right way? How are my actions in this area building others up in Christ? Let me give you a really obvious example. I'll tell you, I try to stay away from being too specific on my examples here during this message. I'll kind of explain why in fellowship group, but I'll give you one just really obvious example. Sunday morning worship. Are you free to come to church and worship on Sunday morning? Of course. I don't think that probably anyone in this room would question that. It's not a sin to go to church. Now, the question is, how are you going to church? Are you attending church in such a way that it's building up others? Or is it possible that you may be putting a stumbling block in someone's way even as you go to church? You see this? I tell you, if you feel like your brain is about to break as you ask that question, that's probably good. It probably means that Paul is doing something here that you're not accustomed to and you're starting to get it. You're starting to see that Paul is taking a totally different approach to liberty than what most Christians are accustomed to. A paradigm shift may be about to take place. You, you may be about to see this issue in color 
instead of in black and white. I'd encourage you to go home and really get thinking about this. Maybe try to come up with some other examples like that one and see where it takes you. Because you may end up adopting a completely different perspective on how to interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ than what you have up to this point. And you may start to see your actions have far, far greater effect on other people than what you realize, and that your obligations to those around you extend far beyond what you ever realized. That's what I hope happens, at least. I hope it gets you your eyes off of yourself and gets you thinking about how to better serve those around you. Let's look now at principle number three. And that's the entitlement principle. Once again, that's the entitlement principle. If you're looking at your watch and you're wondering when I'll actually ever start explaining the bulk of this text, uh, well, here we are. Uh, Only, really, I don't think that I have much I need to explain here. There's some things that Paul says here that have some interesting side implications just in the way he phrases them. For example, what does he mean in verse 2 when he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. You know, um, how does the Corinthians' faith serve as an evidence of Paul's apostleship? That's kind of an interesting question. Um, And what does he mean in verses 9 and 10 when he talks about the scriptural command not to muzzle an ox, And then he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Um, Because if you were to ask me, I would say yes to that first question. When Moses said, don't muzzle the ox, he meant don't muzzle the ox. He wasn't speaking cryptically about the need to compensate pastors. So what's going on there? It could be kind of interesting to get into. And we could get into those texts if we wanted to, but guys, really, these are just rabbit trails. They're detours on the way to Paul's main point about these verses, which is, I have the right to be compensated for my labor. Verses 1 and 2, however it works, you can clearly see what Paul means with those verses. They're establishing Paul's position as an apostle. He's telling the Corinthians, I am an apostle. And that's building to his argument in verses 3 through the first half of verse 12, which is, and as an apostle, I have a right to financial remuneration for my labor. You see it in the creation, verse 7. It's a universal principle that's practiced everywhere, right? It's just plain common sense. But not only that, but verses 8 through 11, it's even commanded in the law. Even the ox that's working on the threshing floor, God makes it so that they're able to share in the rewards of their labor. And so should not Paul have the right to be remunerated as well? This is the argument that Paul is spelling out in the bulk of the passage. And again, I don't think you need me to explain that to you. This is just common sense. That's probably worth noting, by the way, that this is common sense because there are some people who think that men should not be employed in ministry, at least not full-time, that they shouldn't be compensated for their labor. But Paul pretty clearly refutes that concept right here. No, the gospel should not be for sale. That's a legitimate point that those who oppose pastoral compensation sometimes make. The gospel should not be for sale. But that's not what you're doing when you pay your pastor. You're not buying the gospel. You're compensating him for his labor. I mean, a pastor has to eat, right? Same as everyone else. Everyone else works with the expectation that they'll receive some kind of compensation for their labor so that with that compensation, they can go out and buy what they need to survive. It's no different with the pastor. They should be compensated for their work. 
Now, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to compensate him, that's fine. He's still got to eat, though. And so it just means he'll end up spending his time doing something else that will give him what he needs to eat instead of spending it on the flock. So you really have to make a decision on whether or not that's something you want. It's just like every other economic choice. You have to decide to some degree, is this worth spending my money on? Or is it better spent somewhere else, investing in something else? And by the way, I can tell you, that's a rather humbling question to wrestle with as a pastor. I was uh, talking to a pastor friend of mine not too long ago. That's somehow I sometimes think about how much I receive proportionally uh, out of some people's paychecks just due to the size of our church and how much of our budget goes to my salary. And I told him that's sort of humbling because, I mean, my messages, they're not that good. <laughs> like, and uh, I was just kind of chuckling with him over that. So don't think that I'm, I'm telling you all this because I'm asking for a raise or something like that. I'm not. I think I'm pretty well compensated for my labor. All right. Uh, I'm just telling you that because there are some people who oppose the concept of paying a pastor. And Paul shows us here that those people are wrong. Okay. And it's probably worth taking the time to acknowledge that. And if we wanted to, we could spend some time exploring that concept. That's Again, that's really not the point of this passage, though, right? Paul's main point is not to say, pay your pastor. Rather, he's using this concept as an illustration of how to think about our rights in Christ. And he's trying to say, I do have the right to get paid. However, I chose to forego that right in this instance for your spiritual benefit. Again, this is a passage about liberty, not pastoral compensation. The issue of compensation is just an example that Paul is working with to illustrate and explain how to think about liberty. And I think that the main takeaway that we should bring from this discussion about compensation in verses 3 through 12 is that Paul really was entitled to that. And that if he had chosen to receive compensation it wouldn't have been wrong for him to exercise that right. I think that's an important balance to pull out of this passage. I think it can be very easy to think that because Paul was able to recognize the potential damage that his use of this right could cause his brother, that Paul was therefore obligated not to receive compensation for his labor. And I don't think that's really the force of what Paul is saying here. Yes, he acknowledges in chapter 8 that to use such a right can be a kind of sin against one's brother, and even against Christ himself as an extension of that. But you listen to the tone with which Paul defends this right, the intensity of his argument, and he seems pretty intent on demonstrating that he really could have received compensation for his work if he wanted to, and there wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. It would not have been a sin. He could have exercised his right, and he would have been fine. Listen, the point is not, it is not, that Paul was obligated to give up his right. He was not obligated to give it up. But he chose to give it up. He wanted to give it up. He did so of his own volition. And I think that's an important observation to make for two reasons. First, I think it helps us further understand the heart with which we're to exercise our rights. Again, Paul isn't coming at this issue in terms of what's permissible, but in terms of what's profitable. He's not thinking of it in terms of what he must do, but in terms of what he wants to do, in terms of what will produce the most advantage. And what that shows us is that it really is love 
It's really love that's Paul, driving Paul's decision-making here. You understand? No one's forcing his hand. No one's making him do this. There's no obligation in any of this. So why is he doing it? Well, because he wants to. He's doing it because he thinks the spiritual advantage that it will give others, that it really is more desirable than whatever ease or comfort such compensation would bring to himself. Listen, that's the sort of attitude that's supposed to be behind our practice of liberty. That's the example that we're aiming for here. We should be doing this because we sincerely love other people and like actually genuinely care about their spiritual growth more than our own pleasures and comforts. Second, I think this is an important observation to make because it helps us in our attitudes towards others in the exercise of their liberties. Once again, it helps us in our attitudes towards others in the exercise of their liberties. I think we'll see this come out more next week as we dig further into that evangelism principle and how Paul is using that. But there's some discretion to be exercised here. Once you start asking yourself, how will this action affect other people? You're starting to make a judgment call that often requires a lot of wisdom to answer. And not everyone is going to always come to the same conclusions. It's very easy in those kinds of scenarios to start condemning other people for, you know, participating in something that's so obviously damaging to other people or for not participating in something that's so obviously edifying. It's very easy to condemn those people as unloving. Paul's defense of his right here should cause you to tap the brakes a little bit when you're tempted to come to that sort of a conclusion. Think about it this way. Paul clearly thought it best not to receive compensation for his labor, right? I mean, I think we've pretty clearly established that point thus far. If you look here in verse 5, it doesn't appear that Peter came to the same conclusion. If anything, in verse 5, it would appear that not only is Peter receiving compensation for his work, but he's receiving enough compensation for his wife to accompany him while he's on these kinds of journeys as well. Now, do you see any hint of condemnation from Paul that Peter chose to do this? There's none, right? Absolutely none. And the reason is because there's nothing to condemn Peter for. He's completely within his rights here. It isn't sin for him to do this. I think we probably need to take that to heart. You know, Paul mentions Barnabas in verse 6. You might remember, but Barnabas was the one who was so generous in this respect that back in the book of Acts, he even started selling off his own property to benefit other people. You guys remember that? You might recall as well then how when Ananias and Sapphira saw this, that they, you know, how they probably saw the esteem that, that Barnabas was receiving for this, that, that, you know, they were getting from people, that they chose to sell some of their property too, only they lied by saying that they gave everything they got when secretly they had kept some of it back for themselves. And do you remember what 
Peter told Ananias when he confronted him over this. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Listen, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. You hear that? He doesn't condemn Ananias for keeping some of the money. He was free to do that. He condemned Ananias for lying to God about it. Barnabas didn't sell his property because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He truly loved the brethren, and that love made it so that he thought that was the most profitable thing to do with his property. So was Ananias wrong to keep some of the money to himself? No. No, that was his right. What he was wrong about was lying to God about what he had given. Again, keep this in mind when others decide to practice rights that you choose to forgo. This is a wisdom issue, not a sin issue. They may not come to the same conclusions that you do, but that doesn't mean that they're sinning just because they don't choose to forgo some of the same rights that you do. Those really are rights. And they're free to exercise them. You may just have different opinions about what's the most advantageous way to do that. Speaking of which, what is the most advantageous way to do that? If you're curious about the answer to that question, that's what we're going to begin to explore next week as uh, we begin to see what Paul uh, offers in the second part of his defense, um, which we're actually going to explore. I think I just said next week. It's actually we're going to explore in two weeks. We're going to take a little bit of a break from Corinthians next week as we prepare to celebrate Christmas as a church family. Uh, But then we're going to pick back up again here in chapter 9 in verse 13. And we'll see Paul's defense as it continues, and as he continues to explain why he did the way, uh, why he did things the way he did, we'll see uh, more information about um, how to use these principles to the greatest advantage. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.